Have you ever invested in professional development training for yourself or your team and realized it was a waste of time and money because the material wasn't helpful or the presenter may have been nice enough, but just wasn't a credible guide to get you to the next level? Don't waste money on training that doesn't make an impact. Higher Echelon Incorporated is an organizational performance consulting firm based in Huntsville that delivers world-class, impactful, evidence-based leadership training, executive coaching programs, and applied high-performance consulting that helps get clients real results. One sales team came to Higher Echelon because they were really struggling to meet their goals. They went through Higher Echelon's training and met their sales quota for the first time in 14 years. Higher Echelon signature programs are developed and delivered by PhD and ICF certified coaches and experts with decades of experience leading at the highest levels. What could your team do if they knew the secrets from psychology that could help them perform better and feel more life satisfaction? Go to higherechelon.com to learn more or send us a note here at Bell Curve. Go higher and achieve more with our sponsor, Higher Echelon. Hello, Curvies. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Mary Scott Hunter here with Rachel Briers and Liz Bashirs. Anybody remember Christmas Vacation with Chevy Chase? My family makes jokes about being just a bit, a little bit like the Griswolds. And one of my favorite scenes, all-time favorite scenes, uh, is when they're all gathered around the, the, the holiday banquet and Clark has absolutely had it. And I'm, I got to quote him here, and I'm gonna I'm gonna bleep myself on the on the uh, on the R-rated words. But why would you start bleeping yourself <laughs> now, Mary Scott? A lot, friend. We're over a year into this, and <laughs> you never censored yourself before. All right, the Kirby community knows me. I got it. So Clark says we're gonna press on, and we're gonna have the hap- happiest Christmas since Bing Crosby tap dance with Danny F and K. And when Santa squeezes his fat down the chimney tonight, he's gonna find the jolliest bunch of holes this side of the nut house. <laughs> and he's got his Chevy Chase big eyes the whole time, you know, crazy big eyeballs. So this show that we're recording today is airing just before Thanksgiving in the year 2020. With the holidays coming up fast and many, 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 many months now of more family time than some of us are used to due to the pandemic, we thought it would be a good time to cover a sticky subject, family feuds, the internal kind, not the external kind. So don't think Hatfield, McCoys, or Montagues and Capulets. Think the Griswold family and the dramas and the feuds that bubble up within families. (laughs) Y'all, internal family fights. They can be so bad. They can mess with your head. They can mess with you in your life. They can mess with you in your work. Because I don't know about y'all, but I find it really hard to compartmentalize when the dissension is among people that I really care about. You know, if it's kind of external and out there, I can deal with it better and I can compartmentalize it. But man, if you're having an internal family fight, that just wrecks your head. At least it does mine. So I, I guess that's why I really wanted to get into this today. I, it's it, We've all had disagreements with people we care deeply for. It's really perfectly normal. Who doesn't have a memory of a Thanksgiving meal or a visit or, 
you know, a time with family that just went bad. Um, you know, maybe there were some words that were said, um, some things that were exchanged that just weren't the way you hope to be. The Norman Rockwell vision, you know, that picture of all the family around the table and everybody's beaming and smiling at the turkey. Y'all know the one. You know, is that really what it's like? I mean, come on. Is that what it's like at your house? Maybe it is. <laughs> it's just real loud at my house. It's like that, but louder. <laughs> well, because this is a subject that hits painfully and literally close to home, uh, let's start with a famous Hollywood sibling rivalry, uh, because sometimes it's easier to talk about those that are just a little bit further away from from your household. And this sibling rivalry was between Olivia de Havilland and Joan Fontaine. Both women were Academy Award winners. Both had stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame and are acclaimed for their film roles in the 1930s and 40s. I've really always admired Olivia de Havilland. I, I, I just thought she was a beautiful, wonderful actress. You might have thought about her recently uh, because she did die recently in Paris at the age of 103, 104, I think. She was famous for this, her silver screen roles, but also for taking on and, and defeating the studio system in Hollywood that trapped and controlled actors and actresses. So um, I've always just kind of admired her for her moxie. But Fontaine and de Havilland, the sisters, you might not know they were sisters because it's hard to find any evidence of that fact. They didn't appear together. They didn't photograph together very often. And for most of their lives, they didn't even speak to each other. The fighting reportedly began when the two, as children, competed for the attention of their mother, actress Lillian Fontaine. The feud only increased from there uh, as children, as actresses battled over men and film roles and accolades. And remember, these were the days of, you know, the the um, the gossip columns. So they, the gossip columnists, would would write a lot about these two women and their their fusses and their fights. Um, they even went head to head for the Oscar for Best Actress in 1942. Can you imagine? Can you absolutely imagine that? So the the movie was Alfred Hitchcock's Suspicion. Let's see. I think Fontaine won the award, uh, and De Havilland was up for it in Hold Hold Back the Dawn, a, a movie I've never seen. But one won it, and one didn't. It was their mother's death in 1975 that was a final straw. And I think stuff like this happens more often than you think. Fontaine attacked De Havilland for not notifying her of their mother's passing. De Havilland countered that Fontaine was too busy with her career to attend the services. Oof, that's rough, man. Yeah. Yeah. So what do we think was going on with these two sisters? Let's take this example first as we kind of ease into our stuff. You know, it seems like it's just a kind of a fact of life and personality that, you know, sometimes people just do not mesh. So when you're not family, no big deal. You just go and make other friends. But if you're sisters, like if you both are highly competitive A-types, let's think about what it takes to go as far as they did within the acting world. They they were probably of a similar fabric. They probably just didn't get along whether they were sisters or, or regular people, especially if they were prone to anger or hot-headedness. I'm just speculating there. There's going to be a different dynamic than if maybe one sister is that way and the other has a complementary personality. I do think sometimes what happens in situations like this, though, no matter what your personality is, is that if one person will just swallow their pride and be the first to apologize 
hurts can be mended, but they compound probably over years. We've all probably experienced this because all too often, no one even really remembers what they're mad about anymore. It's just that no one's willing to humble themselves and be the first to say, I'm sorry. You can totally see. I mean, we don't, we're not, you know, we don't, I've never read a, a biography of the either of these two women, so I, I can only speculate, but you got to think that there was a point where things could have been repaired or could have been put on a different path. And the few pictures that we do have with them together, they're smiling, they're laughing, they're lovely, you know, so you have to believe that there was an alternate universe where life could have been better. Liz, got any ideas? I think that the closer you are in personality and desires and goals, the more you can see somebody you love as competition instead of somebody that you, sh- you can work together with, particularly in that time when roles, particularly leading lady roles were, were very far and few, few and far between. Um, you know, now today there are so many platforms that host movie, that host movies and TV shows that somebody getting the job doesn't mean that you're not going to. And similarly, you think of a lot of, um, you see, particularly for women, a lot of, raw raw cheerleading today of just just because you have a success doesn't take that away from me mm-hmm. but it wasn't always like that and particularly in a very high stakes environment like hollywood at that time period instead of being cheerleaders for each other you would see those it's much more of a competition. And I think we see that among sibling rivalries and I know we're going to talk about sibling rivalries more later too but of um, if, if you see the world as finite, if you see resources or love or attention as finite, then you are going to be competitive with each other. But the mental model needs to be switched of love isn't finite. You know, emotional capacity isn't necessarily finite. Just because you are competing with each other maybe for parental attention doesn't mean that that's actually a real concern you should have. Can you make any guesses? I was just wondering about their mother and wondering if maybe there might have been a point in time when mom could have said, ladies, knock it off. You know, I know the world is pitting you against one another. I know that things are, you know, that that the, that the environment that you're going to be in or that you want to be in is going to have the dynamic of pushing you in conflict into conflict. But don't. Your sister's. I don't know. I'm just guessing that maybe mom could have put him on a different track. Maybe. I don't know if Hollywood has the reputation for, for producing well-balanced daughter dynamics. <laughs> Good point, Liz. Yeah, there's that. Personally, I think there are two main categories of big family fights. And this is, you know, we always try to be very sourced on our show. And so this is not necessarily coming from, a source. This is just me, Mary Scott, thinking about it. But I feel like there's deep down disagreements like, like disagreements over money or children or parents or blended families or sandwich generation stresses. I feel like sometimes there's these like over health uh, questions or I don't know, there's these big, huge looming things that cause fights. But then there's these like fights and disagreements that occur over relatively small differences. And I'm not sure which one, I I don't know which is harder, which is easier, but it seems like they both result in oftentimes in these really just maybe, maybe with the small differences, it's not knockdown drag outs, or maybe it is a knockdown dragger. Maybe it leads to a, you know, a, a bigger conflag, but it just seems like 
you can have these, you know, huge differences and huge disagreements and, you know, and, and maybe navigate those. But then when it comes down to these small, little, you know, subtle differences, things can get even stickier and quicker. So there's fights and differences that occur over really small differences. Rachel, tell us about what's termed quote, narcissism of small differences. What is that? Well, I had actually never heard of this concept until you pointed out to me recently, Mary Scott. But when I read a couple of articles, it did strike me as so, so funny and likely true. So this concept was first developed by a British anthropologist and then built upon by Sigmund Freud and later others that basically says sometimes the deepest feuds and aggressive behavior develops between groups that are actually very, very similar, relatively speaking. So think the Brits and the Scots or various tribes or nations that are more alike than they are different, but perhaps are each other's bitterest rivals. Or think nuclear families within an extended family system. Think the rivalries between the various branches of our armed services. So I'd argue that if you are willing to serve our nation, you, you are of, you're a certain kind of person. You're cut from a certain cloth. You're more alike than different in important ways, whether that's Army or Navy or Air Force. But as Mary Scott will tell you, service members, Big differences. Yes, service members will, <laughs> will tell you the many ways their branch is distinct from, from the others. Think of athletic rivalries. The biggest ones are usually in your own state, in your own conference. One article in The Art of Manliness by writers Brett and Kate McKay said that this concept is especially acute in communities that have more in common than the general population. So if you think about Christianity, for example, in the Protestant church, there are thousands of denominations. So if we zoomed way out, we'd say, wow, these folks are all very similar, faith-filled, similar habits and practices. But when you zoom in, often various denominations really make it a point of pride that they are not like the other guys, you know, maybe because of some very minute difference in theology. So the idea here is that these deep rivalries and the need to differentiate from people who are actually a lot like us stems from a need to, according to the, the people who believe in this, be unique, have a distinct identity. Maybe it even comes from a human need to feel superior at times, and that that can be destructive to relationships if we aren't aware why we might be compelled to point out that you know, maybe our family is better than the in-laws or whoever. <laughs> well, I've always heard the joke that the religious fights are harder between the denominations than they are between the major religions, Yes, which I, you know, intuitively, I think I know that. It does seem like we fight, we fight over smaller differences oftentimes when it's the big ones that really separate us, not the little ones. I think to, to that point, particularly on the religion subject, um, which is, I think, more and more something we're seeing becoming an interfamily dynamic as well, as there are people who uh, marry across denominations, marry across religions or non-religious people more and more, that, yes, it is those small little differences that we hold so personally. Just you know, think about the, and I don't want to take this into like heavy religious territory, but like think about the difference of how uh, Catholics and non-Catholics see the Eucharist and how there's been literal bloodshed over that for over 500 years at this point <laughs> since the Protestant Revolution. Um, and that is, it might seem on the surface a very, very small thing, 
your small distinction, but in you know, to to the people who celebrate it and really hold it very closely, that is no small thing. And I think you can see examples like that across all kinds of issues as well. I wonder if it's why losing to Auburn is so much harder than ah, losing just to like, like the Eucharist, Cal just like Cal, the Eucharist. You know, <laughs> Southern Gal, or, I don't know. Yeah, yeah it is kind of like that, maybe. Yeah, some of the biggest, hissy, yeah, of like, the biggest hissy fits I've learned in my life for losing to Auburn. Are you kidding? <laughs> What's that novel about um, the woman that goes through the stones and Outlander? Outlander, yes, Outlander. And her dreamy, you know, love interest is um, part of a clan. And I, I guess I didn't know the, the history. Um, I, I did take a history of Ireland and Scotland when I was in college, but I'd forgotten a lot of that stuff and probably didn't look at it with the eyes of an adult at that time or really think so much about the, the family dynamics. And But that, that show and that book, those books, and uh, the family drama and fights and how they side with one another and and you're right Rachel if you zoom out they don't look that different they don't seem that different how different can they be so they fight and they fight hard and in that exact example there was so much more inter and intra-clan rivalry that they had to get past before they could defeat the big boss which was the English and then they ended up getting to that point so downtrodden that they lost big time and so that's something to keep in mind too is that why are we wasting our energy on these smaller battles when it's the it's the the bigger external fights that we that really matter yeah and if you think about that that sister rivalry between um olivia de Havilland and joan fontaine you just wonder what they could have accomplished had they been a united front so let's let's kind of shift a little bit here uh, and you know maybe have some some examples from our own life and just try to get some perspective. What we fought about in my family would fall into the category of small differences for sure. It has at times led to outsized hard feelings. We have fought about all sorts of things in my extended family. Uh, meal times, ingredients, paper, china, kid table or no kid table. Do we go out to eat? Do we stay in? Uh, do we have it catered? Do we not have it catered? I think about these and, oh my gosh, why did we fight about this? But we did. We did. We fought about politics and current issues and whether to have the TV on or not and what channel <laughs> to have it on when we have it on and it's just crazy. I, I, I can remember y'all a few years ago that we, my, my sister had the idea to do a family exchange of gifts and we decided we did, we hadn't done that before. We, you know, the whole drawing the paper and you draw the number and then you exchange gifts. It was supposed to be a lot of fun, but I, I, I did what I thought I was supposed to do, and I got a like a kitchen themed gift. That was that was what I decided to do. And so there was some, I don't know, there was an apron and a cookbook and some other things. It was kind of male because the cookbook was a was a grill cookbook, and there were some big grill tools on it. And I thought it was a really good gift. Well, my brother wound up with it, and y'all, he 
thought it was a joke. He thought it was like a gag gift and he made fun of it nonstop all night long. And I got so upset, which was also stupid because it was supposed to be fun. I shouldn't have gotten upset, but I got so upset. I got so upset and so mad at him. I huffed off to bed. I didn't hardly talk to him the next day. It was not good. I mean, I don't even know if he really, if you're listening, Jamie, I love you and we can move on after this, but I was so upset at you. (laughs) (laughs) Experiences like this in your family. And then like a couple of days after it's all over, you're like, oh my gosh, that was so stupid. What was that about? I know a big one for a lot of families this year is thinking through what the holidays are going to look like given the realities of COVID-19 and the pandemic. This is something my family is really thinking about and talking about quite a bit is everybody has different risk tolerances. Everybody has different uh, ways that they've been handling seeing and interacting with people on the outside. I know for me personally, I've, I've had to travel for work because there are things I can't, I just part of parts of my job, I just cannot do virtually. And so that had that in and of itself has caused a little bit of family strife and I think it comes down to, particularly around the holidays, so much of so much of what the holidays are really becomes foundational to our families. Those traditions we hold so dearly, those those that sitting around the table and, and sharing that meal at Thanksgiving, the the giving and receiving of gifts, uh, whether whether they're jokes or not. <laughs> And my family does the same thing where we, where we draw a name and then have a set amount that we're allowed to spend. And so, you know, sometimes there have been years I've drawn a name and just be like, crap, I don't want to have to pick something out for that person. But those traditions are so personal and so foundational to us that when we're having these conversations about whether or not we should even see and interact with each other what you know in in person it it can lead to to feelings getting hurt right. and to and to saying well if you don't want to see me or if you think i'm a danger to you man that's that can that can feel really hurtful so that's something that this year yeah. we're, we're a lot of thought and, and and are struggling with a little bit honestly that's true i think this year it is true your perspectives and fears of how you react to stressors like the pandemic i think that will be an added stress for for most families this year trying to decide whether to get together or not especially if elderly family members are a part of that picture as far as examples from from my family i'll share more from the nuclear family perspective (laughs) so pepper and i met in washington dc but we're both from alabama so to the rest of the world, getting back to this whole idea of my, you know, minor differences, to the rest of the world looking at us, I'm sure we seem very similar. We're both from Alabama. But Pepper <laughs> is from Mobile, which is down in Mary Scott's territory, down by the bay. I'm from Birmingham. He's an Alabama fan. I'm an Auburn fan. <laughs> and there are very different cult- cultures in our minds, right? And so... <laughs> And our oh-so-predictable estimations. And we would probably both pontificate, if given the pedestal, why our traditions are better or the right way. So one example is that at Christmas in my family growing up, we all opened presents one at a time so we could, like, prolong the magic and, you know, everybody watch each other and appreciate each gift. Well, in Pepper's family, they had seven children. So they all just, like, open presents at the same time in this big, blissful free-for-all. And, and I think they even did it on Christmas Eve. So every year, there's just that little bit of back and forth between us about 
how to do it with our own family, though I actually have su- succeeded pretty well in winning on that one pretty much every year. We, we open one present at a time. Nice. That's the right way to do it. <laughs> you got to make it last, right? Last year, we talked about minimalist Christmas or minimal. You know, I have to say that the whole time I was in that show, I kept thinking, I don't, but Christmas shouldn't be minimal. <laughs> But I was trying to go along and trying to be, um, get you a 1700 square foot house. And then we'll talk about how much stuff you want for Christmas. I know you've won that one, Rachel. Any, anyone, any, any time, have you had to give any? Oh, absolutely. I, you know, we've talked before about the Auburn, Alabama thing. I've just pretty much given up. We just, we all watch the Alabama game. Nobody cares about the Auburn game. Poor old Auburn. Yeah. Poor, poor old Auburn gets no love. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the side. Well, and for our Kirby's out there who are Auburn fans, we love you too, War Eagle. So, Liz, you looked uh, at an article. Uh, what was your favorite? There, there's this article in the Atlantic called "Why Families Fight During Holidays." And the, the subtitle of it is "A Time for Good Food, Comfort, and Joy." And dot dot dot. You could be so pretty if you only lost a little weight. <laughs> And of course, it, it intros with talking about. Can I the, stop you right there? So, yeah, because yeah. my grandmother, my Mima, would say, Oh, Mary Scott. Because remember the era that she came from? She'd say, Oh, Mary Scott, you're so pretty. You look so fat. Oh. <laughs> you're so fat. You're so pretty. Oh, gosh. oh, goodness. Oh, there's a generational difference for you. <laughs> right. I mean, I assume this is somebody who grew up during the Great Depression, yeah. and maybe that's a, maybe having a little extra weight's a thing. Um, <laughs> Oh man! Well, it's the the article starts by talking a little bit about. Um, it says you can't have a canonical holiday movie without intrafamily belligerence, which is a wonderful word. And, um, talks about Home Alone, and then it talks about um, Christmas Vacation, like you talked about Mary Scott. But that is it. It does seem when we all get together, we we do get th- friction happens. Friction happens. Um, it talks about one of my favorite things. Passion, passive aggression. I've always said that my family is not passive aggressive. We are just aggressive, <laughs> so, which can have its own type of own whole set of issues. But it says passive aggression is a common culprit behind petty quarrels, but it's usually developed as an adaptive behavior. The passivity is a way to avoid breaking what the person feels are arbitrary social rules, like having to make the mashed potatoes just so, or being compelled to listen to unwanted parenting advice from an elder. Some people, the Dr. E. Tori Higgins, the director of Motivation Science Center at uh, Columbia University, said some of the people being demeaned as passive aggressive are in fact being extremely careful not to commit mistakes, a strategy that has been successful for them. But the effort to avoid confrontation can boil over into sniping and yelling when the person tires of trying to please everyone. Passive aggressive people become difficult, Higgins said, when their cautious instincts are overwhelmed by demands that they perceive as unreasonable. So maybe, maybe the answer to all of this is grace. Just giving each other a break. Just lay off, people. Um, it talks It talks a, a little farther down in the article about how sibling rivalries don't stop at childhood. And boy, those sibling rivalries are real and they're intense. My sister oh, yes. and I are a little less than two years apart. And there was a whole period of time where we didn't like each other very much because we were too... <laughs> We were very similar, but didn't want to be very similar and had some of that sibling rivalry. We're very close now, 
but we came at things in a different way. We came at problems in a different way. And, you know, we might've had some, some issues from our childhood that were, that were unresolved, some, some competition from our childhood that was a little unresolved, but you know, all these things literally come to the table when it comes to the holidays. Well, it's interesting you bring up the word grace because it is interesting that we give friends, acquaintances, more latitude, grace, and sometimes even respect than we often do those who, who we're closest to, who we love the most. And I think it gets at what what you said earlier, Mary Scott, about uh, how sometimes feuds can happen because expectations go unmet. So, you know, mm-hmm. we grow up sort of developing ideas about families and roles and what people in those roles should and shouldn't do. We ourselves fall short of our ideals for being a good mother or sister or aunt. I remember reading something a long time ago that I liked. It said that if you ever feel bitterness or resentment creeping in on you, it may be because you're clinging to expectations of others and that Mm. it is really freeing to physically or metaphorically sort of make a list of all the expectations you have of someone, then rip it up, throw it away. So Mm. you can be free to, and this is the phrase that always stuck with me, expect nothing, be grateful for anything. I think that's much easier said than done, but it's helped me at times, many times. I have a list that I want to share with our with our Kirby's um, a list we found as we were doing research for this show, eight keys to solving family conflict. And there's one of them there that kind of goes to that idea, Rach. And I have to say that if I if I've had any success in this in dealing with family conflict, it's been more in my late 30s and my 40s. And I think it is a perspective thing. And I think that I have been able to say to myself, I, it is more important to me to preserve the relationship. It is more important to me to, for me to be happy, for my family member to be happy, for the relationship to be happy than to be right or to, for things to be done in a quote unquote correct way. Now, can I always remember that in the moment when my brother is giving me a hard time about a present that I, you know, brought to the party? No, I mess up all the time. But if I, for me, if I can remember letting go of those expectations, because it's more important, because there are things that are more important than those expectations. Those little expectations, they matter. They do. It's not as if they don't matter and you don't matter, but but a lot of those, you, you got to let a little bit of that go if you're going to preserve the relationship, which is so much more valuable. So the, these eight keys, I, I love lists. And let me, let me give you this list. Number one, be hard on the problem, not the people. Number two, understand that acknowledging and listening are not the same as obeying. Number three, use I statements. So I feel, I think, Talking about how, where you are on a subject can often be a better way to, um, to address a sticky thing. Give the benefit of the doubt. Have awkward conversations in real time. In other words, don't send a text. Don't send an email. You know, if you can't, if you can do it in, in real time, so you're talking to them and they're seeing your face, that's best. Um, if you can Skype or FaceTime, that's second best. But a conversation on the phone, you know, those... Have, have difficult conversations, whether it's small differences or large, have those in real time and, and don't, you know, don't have them in a, in a text stream. 
especially not a group text. Keep the conversation going. Life is a dialogue. So if there's an issue that you, you know, can't get past, maybe you can get a little closer together by continuing to talk about it. Now, obviously, you have to figure out where it may not be, <laughs> may not be helpful to have a conversation at times. Something may not bear discussing at a particular moment, but um, keeping a conversation going uh, is good in general. Ask yourself, would I rather be happy or right? That's the thing that I just kind of talked about earlier. That's where I've kind of gotten past a lot of these smaller feud situations that could boil over, but I've managed, you know, not to go there. Have had more success with that later in life. If you're still dealing with it, keep going. It's going to get better. And lastly, number eight, be easy to talk to. I love this one. I can tell when I'm prickly. Have y'all ever felt like when you're like starting to feel yourself getting prickly and you just, I don't know, have that Johnny Cash, I'm going to go into a bar and swing, swing at somebody, you know, I don't know. Can y'all, do y'all just like, can you tell when you're getting there? A (laughs) hundred percent. Sometimes I, you know, the the whole, the the phrase is waking up on the wrong side of the bed. There are those days. I'm just, (laughs) nothing is going to sit well with me and I know it and I feel it and it's still that way. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. So number eight on that list, be easy to talk to. If you know you're in that kind of mood or if you know you have that sort of a disposition, just kind of like whew, breathe, breathe. Several of our guests here in the last couple of months have, have, have reminded us to breathe, breathe and be easy to talk to. Make up your mind. You're going to be easy to talk to that day. These family visits usually don't last very long. So making up your mind to be easygoing, you know, for a day, you can do it. You know, if we let ourselves and others be their authentic, flawed, wonderful, unique selves with all the foibles that come with that, if we can let go of small, insignificant differences and in tastes and traditions and preferences, we will be happier. We'll have a better holiday and we will be easier to be around ourselves. Well, we hope our show today will help you successfully navigate your family dynamics during the holidays this year. If it does, please consider leaving us a review, telling a friend about us, or becoming a patron of Bell Curve at patreon.com slash bellcurvepod. Thank you to our new show sponsor, Higher Echelon. The experts at Higher Echelon know an awful lot about the human condition, and I bet they tell you that getting perspective on these family dynamics is important if you want to be your best you. So thanks, Higher Echelon. Kirby's. We'll see you next time.